Good morning. The scripture text today will be in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command you and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is the word of the Lord. I'll ask you to take your Bibles one more time and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If it, in case it's uh, accidentally fallen closed beside you on the pew, pick that back up because we want to look into it and learn from it. We're almost finished our study through these uh, letters to the Thessalonians, and we're going to wrap up next week, Lord willing, with a, with a short benediction. But before we get there, we've got some work to do. This is the last major section in 2 Thessalonians, and it's an important one. You get the sense that the, the Apostle Paul has kind of been leading up to this the whole time, um, setting up to have this pretty difficult conversation here at the end of his letter. And we saw some of the setup last week when Paul expressed his confidence in the Lord that these believers will do the things that he and the Apostles command, And our passage today begins with, now we command. So you put those things together, and actually that word command is repeated throughout this passage in verse 10 and 12, and you put all of that together, it's clear that Paul is thinking ahead to this discussion. And making this connection, I think, helps us to understand that that the critiques and that the commands that are forthcoming— And let's just be honest, some of these are going to sound pretty harsh to our modern super sensitivities. All of these commands and critiques come in the context of Paul's confidence in the Lord about these believers, that these church members are going to heed these exhortations and that they're going to walk in faithfulness and fruitfulness. So let's just get into it, okay? I don't want to be guilty of twiddling my thumbs on an introduction to a sermon on idleness. So it's best if we just get down to work, roll up our sleeves, and we're going to tackle this passage under three headings. I want to show you first the problem, and then uh, the pattern, and then third we'll look at the prescriptions. The problem, the pattern, and the prescriptions. First, though, the problem, and uh, can you believe it? Can you believe it's possible to have 
a problem in the context of a local church? Of course, we understand that in theory there are no perfect churches, but Christians seem to, to bounce around quite a bit trying to find one. It's a curious thing. And not only that, but when problems do surface in a church, our utter shock and dismay, I think, exposes our true expectations. That it really reveals that what we were truly hoping for was smooth sailing. I think we need to remember that in the church, problems are not really the problem. Problems are not really the problem. The problem is a failure to deal properly and biblically with the problems. That's the problem. I don't know if you followed that. The problems aren't the problem. It's our failure to resolve the problems in a biblical and faithful way. That's what causes real issues. So right from the outset, I want you to understand that this passage is mostly about how to properly deal with this problem more than it is about the problem itself. I, I think that's instructive uh, to us as we approach problems in our own context, in our own situation. Now, Paul's already dealt with a couple of problems so far in these correspondences, you know, problems that the Thessalonian church was facing. For one, you'll recall that they were enduring severe persecution. It was severe and it was sustained and and they were kind of reeling under it. That's a big problem. And secondly, they were exposed to false teaching. And, and the particular stripe of false teaching that they encountered was this, this notion that the day of the Lord had already come and by implication that they had missed out, that they had missed the boat. And what was common to both of these problems was that they came from outside. They, they came from an external source, if you will. The problem in the present passage is different. It's, it, it's an internal problem. The problem doesn't come from others. The problem comes from some of the brothers, if, if you want to put it that way. And the specific issue is described in verses 6 and 10. You can just kind of pick one and, and see Paul says, we hear that some among you, that some of the brothers are walking in idleness. They're walking in idleness. Now, walking, I think you understand, really describes a, a fixed pattern, a way of life. Um, this is how these people are regularly and habitually acting, in idleness. And I should tell you that that word translated idleness really means, if you want to get real technical, the, the original word really just means disorderly. Disorderly is a general term that can be used to describe a lot of different things, you know, like the dysfunction of an army or a variety of things. It's a general term. And I think it's a really appropriate term for Paul to use here when you consider the last part of verse 6. Look there with me. The, be the behavior that these particular brothers were engaging in, quote, is not in accord with the apostolic tradition. 
Okay, so it's, it's, a, it's not according to the biblical order. It is disordered, whatever this behavior is. Now, the translators in our Bibles believe that they could get more specific about the nature of this disorder. And I think uh, that they're right to do so. And they render it idleness. And I think based on the context, that's exactly the nature of the disorder that was occurring in this particular congregation. The, the problem was that in this congregation, some of the members were crazy lazy. I've stolen that title from a, a short little book written by Alistair Begg. And he wrote it, I think, as a sort of companion book to something that uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung had written called Crazy Busy. So there's Crazy Busy and then Crazy Lazy. And uh, I like that because those are really kind of two ends of a spectrum. And both are disorders that believers can easily fall into. Now, there's a lot of discussion about how it was that some of these believers fell into idleness. Some people argue that it's just basically because they live in a Greco-Roman world, and part of that culture includes like a, a real disdain. They turned up their nose against um, blue-collar work, you know, people that would um, do manual labor, work with their hands. Really what was prized in that culture was the life of the mind and, and the activity of the intellect. And so uh, lots of people suggest that these Thessalonian believers had just imbibed that culture so much that it had affected their work life. Many other people suggest that these idlers were people who had overreacted to the apostles' teaching about the second coming of Christ. Um, that they, they believed the Apostle Paul when he said that the Lord could return at any time. And really, the impression that you got was that it was on the doorstep and that you needed to be ready. And so certain people may have thought, well, if that's the case, then what's the point of me continuing to grind it out at work every day? I'll just pack it in and wait for the appearance of the Lord. Now, the problem with those kinds of explanations is that they're speculative. Okay, I don't think that there's anything in the text itself that would indicate that either of these things are where the problem sprung from. In fact, Paul already had to address this issue in his first letter, way back in 1 Thessalonians, albeit he does it in a pretty indirect way. And, and this leads us to believe that idleness is a problem with this congregation right from the word go right from the earliest beginnings of this church, uh, some of the people were falling into idleness. Now, of course, you understand, don't you, that human beings don't need any kind of influence from culture or from bad theology to fall into idleness, right? It seems like we can very easily become lazy. This is a sin that, that we're particularly prone to. And it takes very little for, for, for idleness in us to come to the fore. Now, we don't have to speculate about how this idleness on the part of some played out in the life of that church. Uh, Paul's pretty clear about this. What happened is that these people had given up working. 
But of course, life goes on, right? You, the bills keep rolling in. You still need to eat to stay alive. So it seems pretty clear that these individuals who had forsaken work were relying on the working members of the congregation to meet their needs. You know, the, the lazy folks were on the dole, so to speak. They were collecting pogi, and not from, not from the government, but from their fellow church members. Not only did their idleness result in a lack of independency, it resulted in interference, if we could put it that way. Look at verse 11. Paul says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And I, did you catch that play on words there? It, it, it uh, really, I think, matches what Paul originally wrote. He was making a play on words in the Greek. And this point is made in a very memorable way, that human beings are going to work. Okay, there's no avoiding that. Human beings are busy people. We're going to work. It's part of how we're made in the image and the likeness of God. God is a God who works, and to this day he's working. It's our calling. God has um, commanded us to be productive. And so we're going to busy ourselves one way or the other. It's just that a lot of people are busy at all the wrong things. They're not busying themselves at work or doing productive things. They're, they're busy bodies, which is to say they put a whole lot of effort into other people's affairs. You know, they're, they're uh, professionals at producing problems. They, you know, these are people that lean on their shovels, but when it comes to digging up dirt and drama in other people's lives, the, these people are like woodchucks. They, they know how to dig then. And I, I really love this insight that Paul gives us here with this little joke. I think it explains so much as, as to why there's so much drama out there. You, you encounter this just like I do, right? So many problems. People are just stirring up all the time. Why is there so much time spent on social media? Why are the academics in our universities, why do they put forth such ridiculous theories which, which tend to result in our governor, uh, government inflicting all kinds of cumbersome uh, policies on us? So much of it, if you think about it, so much of it comes right down to meddling. And meddling is the result of a widespread refusal to engage in honest work. Now, before we move on to our, our next point, I think that there's some self-examination that's in order. Is this a problem among us in our congregation? Now, I did say self-examination. So I'm not asking you to identify others who you think have this problem. I'm asking you if you have this problem, even if, as I'm asking myself. And, and just to be clear, I want to reiterate what this problem is and what it's not. We're talking about people who are able to work, 
but are unwilling. Realize that there, there are some people who are willing, who are even eager to work, who for a variety of reasons are unable. And that's not the problem that we're talking about. That's not a problem. And, and notice too, we're not just talking about paid work, paid employment. You may be retired. You may be a mother. You may be a caregiver. I don't know all the different situations that are represented here. The question though really is, are you walking in diligence or are you walking in laziness, in idleness? Are you regularly relying on the goodwill of others to meet your needs, whether, whether that's your parents or the government or your church? Are you busy at work or are you a busy body? Does, do you find that, if you're going to be really honest with you, do you find that drama kind of always is swirling around you like, like dust around that Peanuts character pig pen? If so, I think that's a, that's a sign that you might be a meddler. And if you're a meddler, that might be a sign that you're crazy lazy. So you need to understand that this is seriously disordered. It does not accord with the apostolic tradition. Let's take a closer look at that tradition under our second heading. I'm calling it the pattern. And really that is, I think, one of the themes that we've seen through these uh, Thessalonian letters the idea of this apostolic tradition, this body of, of teaching, this deposit that the early church received from Paul and his partners. And this tradition, that's what was to guide them in their faith and practice. In, in the absence of a, a completed canon of scripture, they have this apostolic tradition that, that's supposed to guide them in Christian living. And as we've seen throughout the weeks, this, is, this tradition's been imparted to them in a variety of ways, right? For example, um, it was imparted to them face-to-face -face when Paul and Silas and Barnabas were there, um, orally, you know, they're speaking these things. Or it's imparted to them um, through letters and other correspondence, you know, through messengers and Timothy, who's an intermediary. All of these ways that truth is communicated to this congregation and all of it together forming this body of truth, this apostolic tradition. And, and I think we also need to understand, it, this comes out in our passage today especially, that there's really two aspects to this teaching, okay? First of all, I want you to know that it comes by apostolic example. If you're taking notes, this would be a, your first sub-point under the second heading. This tradition, this apostolic tradition, comes in the first way by apostolic example. And you see this, don't you, in verses 7 to 9? In those verses, Paul wants to remind the Thessalonians what was modeled to them by the missionaries when they first got there. Paul says, we were not idle when we were with you. We didn't freeload off any of you. 
You know, we, we earned our keep, Paul is saying. And he's calling them into remembrance of that. Listen to how their diligence is described in verse 8. Paul says, with toil and labor, we worked night and day. And I don't think Paul is, is using hyperbole there. I think he's telling exactly what happened. For weeks, they labored in teaching the word of God. In the synagogues and in homes, likely every night after work when they could gather, late into the night, they would proclaim the gospel and, and speak the word of God and ex explain it and talk about Christian living. And then they spent every day working to earn their keep. They had a side hustle, if you will. And it seems very likely uh, the historical record shows that this is probably in the tent-making trade. Paul seemed to have skills at this, and they were the kind of skills that paid the bills. And so Paul and his associates are working diligently. They're laboring, they're toiling. It's night and day, and they're doing this for a specific purpose. The purpose... I want you to understand this right off the bat. It wasn't because they had to. In fact, in verse 9, Paul reminds them that by rights, as gospel workers, they are entitled to the support of the church. That right was established by Jesus himself when he sent out his disciples and when he sends out the 72 two by two, and he says to them, he gives them these instructions, don't bring a purse, don't bring any money, basically don't bring anything, eat what people give you, and the reason Jesus gives is that a workman is worthy of his wages. Paul explains this explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14. He says, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. That's the right. That's the, that's the, uh, the privilege that Paul could have had. But in Thessalonica, Paul and his fellow workers forfeited that right on purpose. It was to give these new believers an example for them to imitate and I think that that is just incredibly kind. You think about how this practically worked out in real life. You, you understand that this was a huge sacrifice. And, and obviously this was motivated by their love for the Thessalonians, for their desire to see them uh, walk in the right way and to honor Christ by, um, by following their example. And so all of this leaves that church with no excuse. As Paul says here in verse 7, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. What you realize is that anyone who continued in idleness is doing so out of obstinance. It can't be out of ignorance. They, they can't say, I, I didn't know I was supposed to be working. No, by apostolic example... They have seen exactly what it looks like to, to, to labor and to toil in a way that honors the Lord. 
I want you to notice in the second place that the, this tradition that these believers received came by way of apostolic exhortation. So not just by their lives and their example, but by their words and their specific and explicit commands. Look at verse 10. When we were with you, we gave you this command. So it wasn't just that they were hoping that um, the, the believers would pick up on their example. No, they were very forthright and specific in giving this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. In other words, you're not entitled to the fruit of labor when you've not labored. And you could have. Now, you understand um, Paul could talk a lot about how it's right for the church to be a blessing for people that, have, that truly have needs, to support widows who are truly widows and that sort of a thing. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about people that are able to work but are unwilling. And if you're unwilling to labor, then you're not entitled to eat the fruit of labor. If you're not willing to work, you're not going to eat. That's not just good advice, you understand. That's not just even just a general principle that you'd be wise to follow. No, this is an apostolic command. And I suppose when I use that term apostolic command or apostolic exhortation, it's possible that you might be left with the impression that these commands have their origin in the apostles themselves, right? For, for example, a lot of people, a lot of times you'll hear people who believe, for example, that, that women have just as much of a right to preach the gospel in a public setting as men do. When, when you point out, for example, that Paul says in 1 Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, such people will say, oh, well, you know, that, that's just Paul. You know, that's just his opinion. And, you know, he was a bit of a, a Neanderthal. Let's just put it that way. And maybe you, you read the command that Paul gave the Thessalonians when he was with them, that, that if you're not going to work, then you're not going to eat. You might be tempted to think to yourself, well, that's just Paul's rule. You know, that... That's just more, more of a, a reflection of his own hang-ups than it is, you know, true Bible teaching. But in both of those cases, we would be totally misunderstanding the idea of apostolic authority. Okay, these brothers were not instituting their own personal, personal commands and their own rules which reflected their own hang-ups. No, these were operating as people who were commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and imbued with all of his authority. The, the apostolic tradition that we have received is nothing less than the word of God and the will of Christ for you. You get a sense of this, I think, in verses 6 and 12. Take a look at those with me. Again, you can just pick one. Listen to Paul's language as he's issuing 
apostolic exhortations. He says, we command you, brothers. And just notice that, for example, just as a side note, we command you, brothers. This is no top-down policy. He's not speaking as a superior. He's speaking as equals, as brothers. And most importantly, notice this. We command you, quote, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing in verse 12. We command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. You you understand that this is ultimately where these commands are coming from. The Lord himself. The apostles are merely his authoritative spokesmen. Now, of course, the apostolic era is over. We're, We're in a slightly different position compared to the Thessalonians in that we don't have the apostles, you know, visiting us and writing to us. Although we do have their writings, and and we've received the same apostolic tradition that comes to us with the authority of Christ himself. We have the word of God, which we must proclaim and believe and obey. This is what we need to walk in the light of. But I think, that the, I think the Lord is very gracious in, even in this era, in our era, to give the church something else. He gives us leaders. He gives us men. He gives us elders and deacons who, yes, are charged with exhorting us and encouraging us, correcting us, rebuking us, should the case require not according to their own personalities and their own preferences, but according to the word of God and according to the will of Christ. And and not only that, but these men serve as examples for us to follow. As you know, elders and deacons must meet certain qualifications in order that they would be examples to the flock, that we would imitate them and and know that we're in a right direction. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 commands us to quote, remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's, That's a helpful gift to the church. I think we are incredibly blessed. It'll help you hear this, I think, from me, if you can just exclude the present company that's saying this, but I think we're incredibly blessed in this church to have in our elders and deacons a group of godly men who labor and toil, who work night and day, and, and not, I'm not just talking about the hard work that they do during the day, which in, in almost every case has earned them the respect of their peers and, and most of these guys are leaders in their fields. But you can also find them here, often, laboring for your sake. Sometimes late into the night. If you listen carefully to the announcements, you'll be reminded of how much these brothers labor for your sake. And so we ought to thank the Lord for uh, this gracious gift. Well, let's look thirdly and finally at some of these apostolic commands in just a little bit more detail. So we've seen the problem 
It's disorder, which a lack of diligence. And we've seen the pattern that idleness is out of step with. It's out of step with apostolic tradition, which we are, have by way of example and specific exhortation. Now let's see the prescriptions. What's to be done about this problem? What we find in this passage is that Paul gives three main prescriptions to two groups of people. Okay, the first one is to the crazy lazy. This first prescription comes to those who are guilty of idleness and dependency and meddling. What exactly does Paul command this crew? It's basically this. Keep yourself. Keep yourself. Which is to say, earn your own keep. Get a haircut and get a real job. Do you see this in verse 12? He's, it says, such people we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. By the way, this is not the first time that we've heard this command or that they would have heard this command. It's at least the third time that they would have heard it. The first time is when Paul was with them face to face and he was saying these things right in front of them. The second time was back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 to 12. Remember, Paul wrote there, We urge you, brothers, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So this would now be at least the third time that they're commanded along these lines. Now, some of you perhaps need this same command and encouragement. Maybe you need to be gainfully employed. Maybe you need to, to, maybe you personally need to work on the quietly part of this command. Maybe you need to wean yourself off of the gravy train, whatever its source, whether it's the government or whether it's your, your, mom or your dad that you're always relying on and and let me just say a special word to our young people if you don't mind I I don't know if this what we're talking about here applies to you personally but you should examine yourself but here here's something that I do know it's not cute for you to be crazy lazy Okay, it's not par for the course of you being a teenager. I, I hope that you can see from the word of God that laziness is a sin. And I hope that you can see that it's serious. Now, your parents might dismiss it and they might kind of navigate, work around it in a way that just bypasses the problem. Your, your teachers might just kind of laugh it off. But the Lord is not laughing. I'm, I'm not suggesting that you move out of your house and start paying your own bills. But I will suggest, I will exhort you right now that you ought to be moving steadily towards that goal. You know that we live in a culture where it's, it's almost expected that you're going to 
be dependent on your parents well into your late 20s. But I'm here to tell you that that is disordered. That is disgusting, actually. If you're a Christian teenager, and if you have a job, you should be one of the hardest working people that your boss has. And either way, even if you don't have a, a job where you're making money right now, your job right now is to work diligently at, at whatever your hand finds to do. You're to work, do your work quietly. All of your responsibilities, you're to be working steadily towards the goal of keeping yourself, or if the Lord wills, towards the goal of having a family and providing for your family. You, you, don't, turn, you don't flick that on as a switch, you know, when you're 30. You need to be working towards that now. Now, in this passage, there's another prescription for a different group of people, so we can take the pressure off for a minute. This, these next two commands come to the rest of the congregation, people who are walking in diligence, not idleness. In fact, there are, like I said, there's two commands that come to this group, and the first one is keep walking. Keep working. Keep working. That would be the blank to fill in. Keep working. This is, this is a sort of an attaboy. This is an encouragement from Paul to keep at it. What you're doing, you're doing well, so keep at it. And we see this in verse 13. It says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So this group needed no exhortation because because they're on the right track, but they do need encouragement. And you can imagine, and perhaps you know this from experience, just how difficult it is to keep doing the right thing over a long period of time. When you see, especially when you see all kinds of slackers, you know, getting by, and not even just getting by, but thriving. You, you know how hard it is to continue to be generous when people just keep sucking, and I mean that word in a, in a variety of ways. But Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary. Stay, stay at it. Now, do you detect just a very subtle shift here? Paul's been talking about working with our hands. What, what he seems to have had in mind so far has a lot to do with our occupations, our jobs the work that we do to earn our living. But in verse 13, he's, he's shifted to a slightly different kind of work. He's now talking about good works. Now, you understand, right? When we, when we say good works, we're not talking about anything that you might do in some effort to earn your salvation. Of course not. There's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. He's talking about the well-doing that people who have already been saved by grace engage in. The kind, the kind of works that adorn the salvation that you already have and perhaps contribute and result in the salvation of other people as you are doing good on even those who as of yet are outside of the kingdom. And I think that this subtle shift should challenge us. 
Okay, many of you I know are very hard workers. You excel at your jobs. You're, you put in crazy hours. Some of you might justifiably be described as workaholics. And who knows, maybe, maybe you're the person that might acknowledge that and even wear it as a badge of honor. But, but you need to understand that that's not all that you're called to as a Christian. You're, you're called to pour out yourself for the good of others. You're called to follow the example of Christ, to do good works that will bless others, and to keep doing these good works, and to not grow weary in so doing. But maybe you're crazy busy. Maybe you haven't left enough margin in your life to bless your family, even your own family. Maybe you've got no time or energy to to bless your neighbors or in some way even to be a blessing to your enemies. Brothers and sisters, keep working. And by that, I don't mean don't keep crazy hours at work. I mean keep being diligent in doing good to all men. Now the third prescription is the second command for the part of the congregation that's doing well. And it's found in verse 1 and again in verse 14. So it's kind of bracketing this whole passage. And it gives us the impression that this is the most pressing of all of the prescriptions. Here it is. Keep away. Keep away. You're to keep away from any brother that's walking in idleness. That's spelled out in more detail in verse 14. It says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of him, which means to identify him, to mark him, and have nothing to do with him. And we, we think, whoa, Paul, that's, that's a bit harsh, no? Oh, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till you see the purpose End of verse 14. That he may be ashamed. What? That, that just sounds so wrong to us, doesn't it? It, it offends our sensitivities. That, that a congregation would distance themselves from a, a sinning member in order to shame them? Uh, I don't know. But before you go too far down that road... Let let me just remind you that these prescriptions, these commands, come in the name of, they come under the authority of, the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't flatter yourself, okay? You're not more compassionate than Christ. I guarantee you that. Perhaps you've recognized what, that what the Apostle Paul is prescribing here is church discipline albeit it's not in the nice tidy step-by-step manner that we would prefer paul had outlined this for us i think what paul's done is really just jumped to the last stage of church discipline or to be more precise the second last step of church discipline He's jumping right to the step where it's necessary to separate from, to disassociate from a a party 
who is persistently sinning in an unrepentant way. Remember, we're not talking here about uh, a, a person that, that doesn't know any better. We're talking about a person who has not imitated the apostolic example. We've, we're talking about a person that has ignored the apostolic exhortation when they were face to face. Then they disregarded all of the reminders in the first letter. And now they will have blatantly disobeyed the clear instruction of this letter. And so what a person like that is clearly demonstrating is that they are unrepentant. And so they must be disciplined. Notice that they're disciplined by the congregation, not by the apostles, not by the elders, by the congregation. And Paul prescribes this with a, a purpose. The purpose is, as we've seen and shuddered about, to shame the person who is willfully sinning. Shame as a positive purpose. Do you, do you even have a category for that in your mind? The Bible clearly does. Idleness, being dependent on others when you have the ability to provide for yourself, that's shameful. That's embarrassing. But obviously, these slackers have moved past the point of shame about that. But when, you see what happens when a congregation of believers separates themselves from such a person, which is a, a declaration of their unified disapproval, then perhaps that person will feel the shame that might deter them from their sin. And I want you to understand that shame is not the ultimate purpose. Shame might make possible the ultimate purpose, which is repentance. A turning from sin to the Savior. A turning away from this disorder into a pattern of sound words and behaviors that are in keeping with the gospel. That's the goal. That's the goal. Now, Paul's prescription also includes the right perspective in verse 15, he urges the congregation not to regard this person as an enemy, but to warn him as a brother. In other words, our perspective in executing this prescription of church discipline is not to, to view this lazy person as an evil, unregenerate enemy who needs to be vomited out of our midst. No, the, the perspective is that this is, a, this is a brother, this is a sister in Christ who's dabbling in serious sin and needs to feel the weight of that sin. And this is a person that is in urgent need of repentance and restoration. And by the way, that's the last stage of church discipline. Not excommunication, but restoration. And this is always to be done with, the, the, with that as the purpose and with that as the prayer, that this brother will come to his senses and repent of his sins and return to Christ and be restored to Christ's body. Now, it's very sobering to, to realize that this prescription that we're talking about would sound foreign 
and cruel to most churches today, even the good one, even evangelical churches. Church discipline, you understand, has all but disappeared because we imagine ourselves to be kind and sensitive and non-judgmental and merciful. And the result is that sin has flourished. Friends, can I remind you that God's ways are so much higher than our own ways and so much better than our ways? We need to submit ourselves to his prescriptions and his purposes. Brothers and sisters, I have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that the Lord Jesus Christ through his apostles commands in this passage. Let us be diligent. Let us work quietly with our hands to provide for our needs, to be dependent on no one except the Lord, to have enough that we can give to those who are truly in need, and to, to work very diligently at doing good to all people, especially those who are part of the household of faith. And we do this for the good of people and for the glory of Christ. Amen? Amen.